to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, uh, I survived the cold. Mm. Um, it, I, I'm done with the snow though, now. I'm <laughs> over it. Like The first couple of days, are like, hey, this is kind of awesome, and then, you know, after that, it's like, I've got shit to do. Please mm. stop. Once it turns to slush, that's mm, when... No one wants slush. Yeah, that's very much the... 10 a.m. on New Year's Day of, you know, the fun of snow. I was like, yeah, yeah, that was fun, but, you know, now I've got to go to work. Mm, yeah, I got to walk. I had to walk for 45 minutes to get to a bus stop oh. um, because the buses wouldn't come all the way out to where near I live. So it's mm. kind of, a tri- I mean, yeah, these are real problems <laughs> that, you know, and I, on that day that it happened, I was at work and literally every customer that came into the shop who I kind of recognized and talked to, I was just like, Phew, 40 minutes, you know what I mean? Mm. The struggle's real, people, until I got the requisite sympathy and most of the time it was just a kind of like, mm, yeah, that's, yeah, it's unfortunate, but shut up. <laughs> yeah, the the worst I can ever remember of working on a snow day was when I used to work on the box office for the showroom and it was... I don't know, like 2010 maybe there was like really bad snow in the winter there and it, I had to f- trudge through snow for an hour to get to work and then you know got everything set up and it got to about one o'clock and they were like yeah no one's coming in just close up and go home so it was like great I've got to trudge all the way back uh, but you know at least I got I got to build them for a whole day I think just because they were saying yeah it was pretty good of you to actually bother to come in because you could have very easily just cried off and said uh yeah i i do not want to die falling over on the pavement mm, yeah it's uh, it's dangerous out there and i think everyone should just stay indoors on mm. uh on occasions like this but you know like my wife's had like most of the week off she's a teacher and like mm. you know snow days are great for schools but like after three days when we actually when I finally had a day off and she'd been off for three days already, I wanted to do nothing because I worked a whole week and I was knackered and she just wanted to get out of the house desperately <laughs> because she had like severe cabin fever. Yeah. Um, so it's just playing havoc with everyone's lives, Ed. And mm. I think that, you know, it's, it's a uniquely British problem to have mm. this where, you know, a couple of inches of snow and we all go feral. Uh, the world and society collapses. Uh, you can't get runner beans anywhere <laughs> Because people are panic buying. And, yeah, we just can't cope. And, you know, our kind of friends in, like, Canada and stuff, where, you know, they, to be fair, they have much, like, colder, like, conditions. And they deal with it a lot better. And I feel like even if we had them all the time, we'd still struggle. We'd Mm. still find a way to let it defeat us. Yeah, but at least they've honoured the great work of Reeves and Mortimer by naming it after a round from shooting stars i don't I, I don't get that reference but beast from the east was uh one of the rounds on shooting stars there was uh another one was dove from above where everyone would have to like coo ah, and the, yeah. the, the dove would come down and beast from the east was one of the lesser known ones that didn't quite take off in the way that dove from above did but that's all i can think of is uh just kind of surreal game show nonsense which mm. detracts from the seriousness of people being trapped in cars overnight and dying <laughs> from freezing cold conditions yeah, yeah. I suppose 
it's it makes it a little less personal when they don't give it a name like you mm. know Blizzard Jeff or whatever. <laughs> when it's just you know Beast from the East is just a vaguely scaremongery name that you can kind of associate with some kind of Siberian monster. Yeah. Um, but I'm just disappointed there was no actual giant yetis because um, I've lived my whole life waiting for something like that to happen. <laughs> and no. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have lived my whole life waiting to encounter quicksand because all cartoons in the 90s taught me that that was going to be a big problem. And mm. it's never come up. Yeah. I, like, I think a zoo escape. I'd like mm. to live through a zoo escape. Mm-hmm. Um, I, live, I was in Essex once working and a, a wolf escaped from a zoo. Ooh. But, I mean, it was miles away. But yeah. I want a full-on Jumanji-style <laughs> rhinos coming down the road. Mm. It's just never going to happen, unfortunately. Well, we can we can but dream. You know, satires mm. will collapse seems always to be just round the corner. And, you know, someone's going to forget to lock those cages. Yeah. <laughs> we spoke for five minutes about snow and societal <laughs> collapse. Um, what's going on in the world of movies, Ed? Well, I think we should start off by wishing all the best to Kevin Smith, who is someone that you and I have certainly ragged on in the past on this podcast because of his some of his movies we didn't particularly like and some mm. of the things he said particularly about critics kind of irked us but this week he had a heart attack in between two shows he's performing and you know had to have you know surgery and treatment for it and uh, is hopefully you know on the mend because for whatever problems we may have with with him and his work uh you know he's still a guy <laughs> he's still mm. a, a husband and a father and he is someone who also you know in the past, you know, some of his work I do dearly love, certainly some of the earlier movies. Uh, and, you know, you you want him to kind of stick around, if only for the chance of redemption in my eyes. Yeah, um, it's never nice to no. have a heart attack. Um, and, yeah, whilst, like you say, we do give him uh, a fair amount of shit on this show, mm. we would rather he uh, he was uh, still with us. Yeah. It's yeah. not 2016, you know what I mean? People mm. can't be checking out like that. Yeah, and and, you know... There are worse things to be than someone who makes movies that maybe aren't the best. Mm. Like, he's not actively making the world worse. He's just a guy who really loves movies and, you know, is living his dream of getting to make them and to go on stage and talk about his work, which, you know, and and to entertain people. And, you know, it may not work for us, but it obviously works for for lots and lots of people. And, uh, you know, I'd rather he be around entertaining all those people than not. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Get well soon, Kev. Yeah, and uh, also just a quick Black Panther update. Uh, this weekend, it crossed the half a billion mark in the US and is about five hundred and one million at the current time, and closing on in on nine million nine hundred million worldwide. So doing pretty well. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Mm. Um, given that what it's two weeks that it's been out, yeah, um, and it's it's showing no real signs of slowing down greatly. I guess. Mm. Yeah, and is now the second highest grossing of the Marvel films, at least in the US. It just overtook the second Avengers movie. And uh, it's up in the air if it has the... still has the legs to uh, overtake the first Avengers movie. But uh, it's got a very, very good shot, which, you know, as we've said on uh, this show, it's not something that a lot of people would have been predicting. No, no. At best, you know, you were looking at it being not... a not like, you know, kind of like in the middle somewhere because mm. uh, it was an easier sell than something like Doctor Strange, I guess. Yes. Um, but you didn't expect it to be trouble in the maybe the top five. But mm. 
Yeah, how wrong we all are. Yep, and delighted to be wrong as well. Yeah, I'm still really upset that no one's asked Donald Trump a uh, Wakanda question. Like, <laughs> you know, asking him what he thinks of imports or exports out of Wakanda. Now he's added, like, you know, these tariffs to steal. Mm. <laughs> Just to see if he falls for it. Yeah, because someone did that to one of Bush's press secretaries at one point. They asked him a question about how things are going in Thredonia, which, of course, <laughs> is the, uh, the fictional country from Duck Soup. Uh, and I think they said that things were going fine there, which uh, yeah. was clearly a lack of, of knowledge because things are not going well in Fredonia. It's run by idiots. Yeah. Although we haven't seen what's happened since. They could have gotten new management. <laughs> yeah. They've kind of expunged the vicious and incompetent reign of Rufus T. Firefly from history. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in kind of uh, wonderful poetic justice news, uh, it was announced this week that the Weinstein Company is being bought by an all-female-led investment company. And this is something that's been mooted for a while. There was a bit of confusion, though, because people were like, is this deal going to go through? Is it not? Uh, and it was finally kind of like announced that it is happening. And, uh, you know, it's it's nice, certainly from a, and a, an optics point of view, that a company that fell apart because of the terrible indiscretions of its male leaders is now being taken up by by women but uh, also you know the Weinstein company may not have as good of a uh, a track record as like Miramax did it wasn't the force that that company was but it still put out a bunch of like good interesting movies over the years and it'd be good that that library is preserved and you know maybe we'll find get to see like the uh, people will be able to finally see like the unbastardized version of the Grandmaster, other than having to do what I did and order it from China. Mm. What's interesting is that um, it includes uh, the Dimension uh, mm. kind of brand, um, yeah. and with that and uh, the Weinstein Company, that's two hundred and seventy-seven films. Mm. So it's you know it's no small change. Uh, yeah. But they bought up the debt, they bought up the equity, and they are forming a company that will also give compensation to the victims of uh, Harvey Weinstein um, mm. to the tune of $90 million, Yeah, uh, is, is what it's saying here, which is, you know, it's a fairly significant thing to happen when, you know, five years ago you'd look at, you know, the Weinsteins as being big power players and now they literally have no power no stakes no equity no nothing yeah all they have is a, a legacy that is you know rightly tarnished mm-hmm yep and uh but it does mean that we still get to suffer through as i have recently every time you watch like a movie from the 90s and the miramax logo comes in or like harvey weinstein's name shows up it's like oh yeah, yeah, it'll always it'll always be on Lord of the Rings mm. because you know, and that's this kind of shows how Hollywood works. Sometimes they're like they had nothing to do with making that movie, absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, um, apart from the fact that when Peter Jackson and you know the the wingnut guys were shopping the movie around, they went to Miramax and said, "Do you want to do it?" And Miramax said, "No," <laughs> and that was it. But something in there said that they had to have executive producer credits, mm. which is fucking insane, given they yeah. did. Like, y y sometimes you, you get it when you see 
like um, people have like screenwriting credits where like they didn't write the script, but they had worked on an earlier draft and. Yeah, you know, yeah. there are rules in unions to protect people being screwed out of credit. So you see, well, you know, maybe there's a reason that that's there. But for that, it was genuine, genuinely, oh, they they turned down the chance to make this movie, but got credit as executive producers. Mm. And their yeah. names will always be there. Yeah. And also, I guess we've got a few more years of, like, their unreleased movies, because they had a bunch of movies that were slated for release that are just in limbo at the moment, like The Current War, which was the one about Edison and Tesla, which Mm -hmm. was kind of being lined up as a big award season player and then still hasn't seen the light of day. And the remake of Intouchables called The Upside, I think, which stars Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Mm -hmm. And like, you just wonder like, are those movies ever going to get released? Are they going to just get dumped on VOD one day? Uh, Yeah. So, but, I guess uh, they are kind of, through no no fault of the the actors and the writers and the directors, they are kind of toxic assets at this point. But you still got to think about some way of dealing with them. Yeah, it's weird that because I mean, this is why Netflix exists. You can just fucking mm. dump it on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that people can say, "Oh, yeah, these movies probably aren't." a good idea like it wasn't a good idea to take that slightly mawkish french movie and remake it with american actors or there's not really that much interesting about the conflict between edison and tesla yeah yeah who who was in that was benedict cumberbatch in that or I just yes oh, yes he was. Benedict, okay. he was and i think michael shannon's in it as well because i remember seeing him being interviewed about unrelated things i think it was probably a shape of water review and they were asking him about that movie and he was literally like i don't fucking care <laughs> like <laughs> i don't care if it ever sees the light, light of day to be honest uh michael sandwich seems like a pretty uh, sound dude yeah yeah it'd be interesting to see what happens to that because i mean there is money in it somewhere and mm. though that money that's going to come back from those films being screened is going to go into that big pool of money for the victims and, mm. and 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 actually do some good but at the same time you know, how much is it going to cost to to kind of change things if that needs to happen? Is there legal loopholes that and, and like, you know, hoops that have to be jumped through? There probably mm. is. Um, so, yeah, I just hope it gets sorted out quickly. We can kind of be done with this terrible business. Yeah. Or they could just throw the hard drives into the into the into the ocean so they can float down next to like the decaying remains of the last 30 minutes of the magnificent Ambersons. Yeah, kind of like we haven't really done this sort of thing for a while, so let's let's go back to a different Hollywood tradition. Yeah, yeah. And before we get into our main topic, the last kind of bit of news, which sort of ties in because we're recording this on Oscar night, Hollywood's biggest night, uh, mm-hmm. just before the ceremony. And last night we had the Independent Spirit Awards, which has kind of become certainly for me kind of a nice aperitif because it's nice seeing smaller movies get recognized although there's a lot of overlap between the movies that get nominated for both awards uh but also they have really good choice in presenters um as evidenced by this year where it was the second year in a row that nick kroll and john mulaney hosted and uh, they had a lot of material from this past year to really work with yeah if anyone wants to watch it it's on youtube but their mm-hmm. opening monologue is absolutely savage yeah yeah there's they, a great they do not hold back so there's a very, very great um, uh, Harvey Weinstein joke where they said, you know, when they, where John Mulaney talks about having, was it? Yeah, John Mulaney talks about having 
gone in for a meeting with Harvey Weinstein and he says like the when when he talks to him he talks about how he was only really concerned with TV at that point. And he says, you know, when I die, he's not going to say Pulp Fiction on my tombstone. It's going to say Project Runway. And then Mulaney says, well, now it's not going to mm-hmm. even say that. It's just going to say XXL Unmarked Grave. <laughs> yeah, that is, it was pretty brutal. And mm-hmm. uh, they also had, you know, choice words for Brett Ratner, for mm-hmm. Woody Allen, for Kevin Spacey. Um, and they don't hold back. And um, I guess we're not going to see that kind of, thing at the Oscars tonight. Um, not mm. planned anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's refreshing to see, uh, you know, the kind of like punkier younger brother uh, of the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, you know, take out some of the trash. Mm. Although I think you and I are in agreement that it would have been nice if they do it for a third year in a row to kind of go out in a blaze of glory and just do it in characters, the characters from Oh Hello as mm-hmm. uh, Gil Faisan and George St. Geegland and just spend the whole thing being furious about the fact that they're hosting the Independent Spirit Awards and not the Oscars. That would be apt, mm-hmm. I feel like. And, you know, they're never going to... Well, let's, well, never say never, but they're never going to be asked to present the Oscars. No. Um, we still haven't seen, you know, Faye and Polar present the Oscars, so it's not going to be uh, Kroll and Mulaney. No, no. But it would be, it'd be fun to see them do that, because uh, if anyone's ever going to succeed at kind of self-immolating hilariously on an award show stage. I think it'd be those guys. Mm, yeah. And it would at least be watchable as a ceremony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. None of that. Seth MacFarlane lark. Or um, I was thinking today about how awful a job it is to host the Oscars because it's such a, le- a lumbering beast that even people like Neil Patrick Harris, who was like great Tony's host several years in a row, really kind of fun light presence, just completely flailed when he had to keep that beast of a ceremony moving along and it didn't help that they lumbered him with that really terrible suitcase gimmick where like it was going to contain all of the it was like a magic trick and it contained the answers and they kept cutting back to it and it was that awful thing where it didn't get a laugh the first time that it happened and they had mm-hmm. like five callbacks to it and you thought you could see them being like oh <laughs> there's there's no way of backing out of this now. We've built so much of the show around this idea and it's not working at all. Yeah, I, I kind of so infrequently watch the actual whole ceremony mm-hmm. that I um, ever really get a sense of, you know, what the hosts are like. I mean, I always remember that David Letterman was pretty bad mm-hmm. back when you could get it on the BBC uh, back in the day, because um, I was always a huge fan of the Late Show, but like it just it just did not translate at all. Um, yeah, it just seems like a safe bet to give it to you know Steve Martin or Billy Crystal or Whoopi Goldberg or something. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we'll see how how Kimmel does. I think he was he was a decent enough host last year, but I wonder if it's going to be like the when John Stewart hosted it the first time and he wasn't very good, but the show did really well, but. The second time around, he was really good, but the ratings were bad, which inspired a great Daily Show joke from, I think, John Oliver said it, who said, the first time around, you delivered a basic cable uh, performance to a nationwide audience, and you gave, the second time around, you gave a primetime performance to a a basic cable audience, which I thought was a a great burn on his performance. Um, Because he was was really funny the second time around, but when, I think the second time was when he like brought Marquetta Riglova back because she got played off when they were accepting the Oscar for once. And he was like, oh, no, no, she didn't get to say anything, so please let her do the speech, which I always thought was a real classy thing to do. Mm, yeah, indeed. 
but yeah, Get Out did really well at the Independent Spirit Awards. This was why we were mentioning it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I forgot, yeah, briefly. Uh, and it was, uh, that's in some cases seen as something of a precursor at this point because the Independent Spirit Awards has matched up with Best Picture for the last four years in a row as smaller films have done better. So that may hold true in a couple of hours' time. I hope it does because I really like Get Out and I think it's a, it'd be cool to see a movie that isn't traditionally thought of an Oscar movie win the big prize in much the same way that Moonlight did last year. Yeah, there is always, always that hope. I don't know when voting finished. Mm-hmm. Was it a couple of weeks ago, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, within the last two weeks, yeah. Yeah, um, so a lot of these awards wins won't kind of factor in, mm-hmm. um, but some will. And, you know, I would love to see something like Get Out, Walk Away with some awards. I don't think it will. Um, I think it'll win something. Um, yeah, you hope. Yeah. Yeah, it's become a little less predictable uh, in yeah. the last couple of years. I mean, the the, the nominations have bored that out. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I, d- I no longer fear. Like the the darkest hour is in there, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. That's in the mix. Yeah, I'm not scared that that's going to win best, best picture. picture. Yeah. Whereas ten years ago, I would be certain that would win best picture. Mm. Yeah, it's very much been, apart from, it, it definitely feels like uh, the, where Gary Oldman's coattails have carried that one across because people like that, you know, fat bastard style performance <laughs> that he's giving where they put him in a fat suit and he does a voice. So mm. the, that that has dragged the film over the finish line in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if they were still doing just five nominations. Like, it feels like that got dragged up just because his performance is so well liked um but yeah there's there's never been any real sense that it has any chance uh and that's nice because it does remove a bit of a worry you can focus on like is it going to be one of the three or four better movies or you know in the case of billboards one of the worst movies that just happens to fit with you know what oscars are interested in Mm, i actually don't have i think the the best picture is the hardest one for me to call. I mm, think like, it's a very open twice. race. Yeah, it is. Like, and I haven't seen all the entries, but I've seen most of them. Mm-hmm. And um, I know I don't want to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah, it's anyone's guess. It's anyone's game, apart from Darkest Hour. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's out of it. Yeah, it's that, got no heat. And, and the post probably as well. As much as I liked the post, the fact that it only has that an actress doesn't really bode well for it. Yeah, yeah. And when you've got like more than five films nominated, mm. there's always a bit of chaff in there. Yeah. Uh, as in, when I say chaff, there's no disrespect to any of the films that are nominated, but there's films that when we do a pub quiz in 25 years' time and you'll the answer will be, you know, a Oscar-nominated film in this year, you will have completely forgotten that, A, that film was nominated, and B, mm-hmm. that it exists. Yeah. Like, and I always say that, I think it was 2009, I think, was the first year that they expanded the number more than five. Mm-hmm. And District 9 was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, that's a crazy one. And, like, that's a, that's a, that's a good movie. Mm. I enjoyed it. It but- was... Dominated for Best Picture? Mm. Inglorious Bastards has a little bit of that as well, because that's the same year. And that's a mm. good movie, but again, it's like, really? That was the one that really kind of took 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, curious. So our main episode this tonight this this week is an Oscar related one. Uh, obviously the ceremony is going to happen uh tonight and uh, people will know by the time this episode airs who won. And uh, it's kind of a sequel to an episode that I did last year during the the Matless uh period, the Matless era when you The were Lost traveling. Months. Yeah, uh, in which I ranked the in my opinion, the 10 best pictures. And we're kind of going to do something similar here. And this is going to be about best, best directors. So like the instances when you look at the Oscar winners for best director and you say, yes, you got that mm-hmm. right. Then, uh, which uh, surprisingly isn't that often as I was looking at it because um, it's, it's a rough list. It is. Yeah. I was looking at it. And one thing that surprised me is that the director and picture don't line up as often as you would think because there's always this idea that it's kind of like a lockstep thing where like except in like a handful of instances where they split it but there's actually been a lot more splitting of the two than that conventional wisdom would uh make you think and it you know it's become more popular in recent years for them to go okay damien giselle gets director moonlight after some confusion gets picture you know but yeah, there, so there are instances where you can say, okay, the wrong film won Best Picture, but you know they they recognise, oh yeah, that this I was yeah I was going to say guy, and then I said, well, that's kind of unfair. But then I thought, mm, in eighty eight percent of the eighty eight instances, it was a guy. So yeah, you can say where the 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 guy uh, that won Best Director was probably more deserving. Mm, yeah, it's I'll tell you one thing, like looking down the list of like what's won. And, you know, you were saying about how the best picture and the best director don't often line up is how often directors win Oscars for their worst films mm. or they, they win for films that are nowhere near as good as films they've done. I mean, the the biggest one of this would be Martin Scorsese, who won for The Departed. Yes. And, I mean, he's been nominated. Every film he's been nominated for maybe except for Hugo, yeah, is is better mm-hmm. than The Departed. And, you know, that was very much a case of rewarding... That's a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, rather than rather than an actual... You know, he wasn't the best director that year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is definitely a sense with that film. And I don't dislike The Departed, but I do think it's like, in terms of, like, how representative it, is it of... Scorsese as a filmmaker and of his style it's not the Mm -hmm. most it doesn't feel like one he has much of his heart in it's just a movie he made that you know happened to catch fire it's not I don't you know I I think he's done at least two movies since then that are much more deserving which would have been The Wolf of Wall Street and Silence which is Mm -hmm. funny because you honestly couldn't find two more disparate movies (laughs) um, uh, in terms of style one of them is like pure maximalism and the other one is as austere as American movie making gets but yeah there's just so many movies throughout his career that he should have won for and he was either not nominated or was nominated and was overlooked and when he won it's just like "Eh, I guess but, yeah, sure. Yeah, but definitely not the most the, the movie that he most deserved to win for, which probably would have been you know Raging Bulls, pretty good one. Goodfellas, not bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a bunch of movies that perhaps were better showcases for him as a as an artist than The Departed was. Mm. And I, I'll say one more thing before we actually get into this, but like the amount of times that the best director Oscar goes to what was generally the 
the film that did the best that year mm-hmm. in terms of like box office or general support. And I'm going to just pick out one example of like in from recent history, um, which was in 2010 mm-hmm. when Tom Hooper won for the King's speech. Yeah. Now, I don't know Mr. Hooper, mm-hmm. and I mean him no disrespect, but the King's Speech is a very staid, stodgy drama mm-hmm. that, in terms of looking at it and its directorial style and the imprint that the director has as the author of the work, um, is not quite as clear as, say, the other nomination nominees that year, in which you had Darren Aronofsky, who did Black Swan, mm-hmm. whether you like the movie or not. He directed that. Yeah. Uh, the Coen brothers did True Grit, uh, David Fincher and David O. Russell um, with The Social Network and The Fighter, respectively. Now, whether or not you think those films are any good or not, all four of those films have the director's fingerprints all over them. Yeah. Whereas pretty much anyone could have directed The King's Speech. Yeah, and they probably wouldn't have used quite as many wide-angle lenses. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's the only thing, in retrospect, that's the thing you can point to and say, oh yeah, that was his stamp, just mm-hmm. making it look slightly distinct, but not actually good-looking. Yeah. Which is more of a problem when he decided to bring that entire aesthetic over to Les Mis, uh, mm. where he applied it, or where he decided that the entire movie needed to be done in awkward close-ups. Mm, just to prove that they were singing. Yeah, where yeah. literally the only time that works is the Anne Hathaway I Dreamed of a Dream bit, where you think, okay, yes, that aesthetic works here, and mm. you're showcasing her performance, and this is why she won the Oscar. Yes, that is that is that works. Literally, yeah. every, throughout the rest of the movie, it's just like, learn to shoot a fucking musical. This is the same problem I had with um, Chicago, which I mm. watched today for the first time. And like, I love the show Chicago. I saw it on, on Broadway many years ago. Uh, weirdly with one of the Backstreet Boys playing the Billy Flynn part. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kevin Richardson of the Backstreet Boys. Uh, I missed out on seeing Billy, Billy Zane play the same role by a matter of weeks. Oh, that um, good. Yeah. Um, like the, the, the big thing that's a problem with that movie, and everyone always cites it, is the fact that they split up the... They have it so that all the musical sequences are, with a handful of exceptions, are all fantasy sequences, all mm-hmm. happening in Roxy Hart's mind. But that doesn't like open it up to inventive staging because all they do is the actors perform on a stage. So mm-hmm. there's like bits where they have like jail bars kind of there to give a bit of staging, but for the most part, it's just variations on this character is now singing and every single scene is clearly just assembled from coverage and there's no kind of sense of like, Oh, this is, this was shot with intent and everything was staged with the camera in mind. It was very much like, okay, we're just going to shoot this choreography with 30 cameras and then hash it all together in the edit suite. And that is the same. That's kind of the same problem you have with, uh, with lame is where it's like, there's one very bad decision that's made early on and then it kind of hampers the rest of the movie so even if the source material is good and the performances are, are, are good as well then but the the visual choices just completely fuck everything up mm. so Rob marshall also nominated for best director which is crazy <laughs> yeah so that kind of just bears out my point that there is very often a winner or even just nominated directors mm. who have not 
really... I mean, they've directed the movie and the name's on the credits, but if you're talking about kind of auteurism or, you know, films that have the unique stamp of the director Mm -hmm. uh, all over it that is instantly recognisable or it's, you know, fresh and dynamic and interesting, they are very, very often beaten out by the person who just happened to be behind the camera whilst Mm. a successful film happened. Uh, Another previous example, and there are many... Who was it? Ron Howard, 2001. Mm. Beautiful Mind. Yeah. That a very, you know, watchable, stayed drama. Beat David Lynch, beat Peter Jackson for Lord of the Rings. You know, he actually mm. made a movie that was seemed impossible. Mm. <laughs> he beat Robert Altman for Gosford Park, which isn't one of Robert Altman's finest movies, but you could watch any five minutes of that and say, that's a fucking Robert Altman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas A Beautiful Mind... Could have been Tom Hooper, for all I knew. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and the thing is, like, Ron Howard is, like, a decent director. And I think mm-hmm. if he had won for directing Apollo 13, like, yep. five years earlier, I'd have been fine with that. That's a mm-hmm. really, really well-directed movie. And it's a great accomplishment in terms of, like, the simulation of weight, weightlessness and everything. But A Beautiful Mind really does feel like, like like you say, it's, it's almost like a lifetime achievement thing where a few years later, it's like, oh, we fucked up. <laughs> like and it's like oh what do we give it for well we can't give it him for the grinch yeah uh, <laughs> like let's wait for the next one to roll around oh, okay this will do yeah uh or even a couple of years later like if he'd won for cinderella man it wouldn't have been the, the best option but that's a a more distinctive movie than uh than a beautiful mind yeah they were probably like david lynch has got another few movies in him after marlon drive <laughs> yeah oh man if he had won if he had won best director for inland empire that would have that would have been destroyed everyone's minds. Yeah, well, they were probably thinking about it. They were like, mm. right, we promised it, we, we fucked up. <laughs> we'll yeah. give it to him for the next one. They were like, oh, he shot it on video. Oh, what, you mean he's out there on the side of the street with a cow um, <laughs> trying to campaign for Laura Dern's best... No, let's, let's wait for his next one mm-hmm. and uh, try as they might. They can't get uh, the TV series of uh, Twin Peaks to be accepted as a, uh, as a film for the Oscars. No, yeah. Maybe they could have at least given him, like, best short for one of those Dumbland uh, shorts he did, or the Rabbits one that ended up becoming Inland Empire. He's mm. like, well, we've got to give him something. Yeah, all those PlayStation 3 adverts with the ducks. <laughs> so fucking strange. Yeah, oh, I would have... Yeah. I'd love to have seen that. So, uh, yeah, so we're just going to kind of, like, run through some of our pers- our own personal choices um, in no particular order. I'm going to start with... Mike Nichols for The Graduate as a mm. example of them getting it entirely right. That was a year where they did split because uh, In the Heat of the Night won that year, another good movie. But uh, I think that The Graduate is a great showcase for his particular comedic sensibilities. You can really see his dry wit in it, but also just in terms of the editing and the use of music and stuff like the what during the Sounds of Silence montage where it's all transitioning between different scenes and like... Uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman is falling down into a pool, and then the next thing you see, he's diving onto uh, on, onto Mrs. Robinson. I think that is such a wonderful example of a director developing his style and really kind of coming into his own as a cinematic voice. Uh, and he was, you know, it was only his second movie, and he previously directed Who's Afraid of Vin- Virginia Woolf, which is a really great movie as well, but. That's more kind of like someone saying, okay, here's a stage play. We're going to break it out a little bit, but not that much. People are going to have conversations walking through the grounds. Uh, They're not just going to all be in one room, whereas that feels like a genuine cinematic movie. And 
I think a, a large reason why that movie still holds up is because of Mike Nichols' directing. Mm, and it was a fucking tough field that year. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, like 1967, if you want to talk about, you know, film history, that was the point at which the old system was dying away and you were getting all the new uh, the new Hollywood guys coming yep. through. And you've got Mike Nichols and Arthur Penn, uh, who got nominated in that same category for mm. Bonnie and Clyde, both there. And then the other three... Um, uh, nominees were no kind of like fusty old timers either. You had In Cold Blood, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which, whilst they are kind of liberal classics, I guess, um, they are modern movies, um, mm. and with like Richard Brooks, Norman Jewison, and Stanley Kramer. And of all those movies, all classics for various reasons, you can say that Mike Nichols was the right choice. Although, you know, after Bonnie and Clyde arguably could be a more important movie mm-hmm. um the graduate certainly the better one yeah i i would absolutely say so and yeah uh rich the in cold blood as well is just like a really beautiful movie there's a, there's a shot in that movie which i think about very often which is when um what's his name uh robert blake is like looking out a window and it's raining and the raining the rain is falling on the the window pane it looks like he's crying and it's i think they said it was an accident that it came out that way but you know, I think a sign of a good director is when you see an accident, you say, oh, this is great. Let's just use this. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a movie I, I like to revisit. Um, not that often because it's very depressing and dark and disturbing, but it's certainly one that when I revisit, I'm always kind of amazed anew at how, how great it is, which is also how I feel about The Graduate. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pick one now. Okay. Uh, 1954, uh, Elia Kazan from The Waterfront, um, mm. which is another tough year. Um, but if you think about what his direction represents and it represents the kind of apotheosis of that style of acting, that method style and, and, mm. and how that was starting to cross over from stage onto screen, directing uh, the performance of, of Marlon Brando who and uh, uh, Rod Steiger as well. That's fairly important because all the other nominees around that time, afterwards and before, are all very traditional Hollywood movies. Mm. Um, and he also beat out uh, Hitch for, not the movie Hitch, uh, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I'm so I'm so good friends with uh, him, I get to call him Hitch. Um, <laughs> Rear Window, you know, mm. that's no, no slouch of a movie. Yeah. Uh, Sabrina, Billy Wilder, um, and then two others that I've never heard of. But uh, <laughs> of the others, Rear Window and Sabrina, both great movies, both very old-fashioned movies compared to mm. on, on the waterfront. Um, and I think the uh, in that instance, with those five films nominated and that choice, um, that seems to be a, a win for the right reason. Yeah, and you know the, the the politics behind that movie are also quite complicated, and it's often seen as Kazan trying to justify his own decision to name names and things like that and that Mm. you know that obviously tainted his reputation for a long time famously when he got his uh, lifetime achievement oscar in like 98 or 97 in the late 90s there was you know footage of people like ed harris and nick nolte just kind of sitting there with their arms crossed very much thinking you know this guy's a a traitor and uh, to the the cause of you know art and free speech and things like that but i think you know that also is part of its greatness is the fact that it is a deeply personal work on his part. You know, he is using it as a pre-existing story to 
express his own feelings about what he did and his conflicted sense of like was this the right thing to do you know he may have thought it was at the time and i think in later years he kind of regretted it but you know it's it's not a simple you know it's a black and white movie in the sense that it was shot in black and white but it's a very complicated complex movie Mm, yeah totally uh i'm gonna pick as my second choice uh we're going to go to 1972 and Bob Fosse winning for Cabaret, which mm. I think is one of those ones that uh, some people probably think is a little bit controversial because he beat Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather, uh, which I can understand, although Coppola did win Best Picture. So that's a, you know, it wasn't like he went away completely empty handed. And then two years later, he like swept the board with the second Godfather movie. So it didn't exactly slow him down much. But I think that's a case of a director who was an innovator on stage, obviously, you know, previously mentioned Chicago, which he would develop a few years later. But, you know, that is a case of where he comes from this uh, background as, as a theatrical director, but he isn't, uh, unlike Rob Marshall, you know, he, he comes to it as you know, someone who also understands how film works. Mm. And you can really see that it's a very beautifully shot movie but it's also a very kind of steely movie in terms of its exploration of you know Weimar Germany and the particular cultural milieu that would allow Nazism to rise and you know he's very clear-eyed in how his in his depiction of how that kind of slowly creeps in some like the the tomorrow belongs to me sequence is rightly kind of uh held up as a, a kind of like a really disturbing moment in cinema uh though not by nazis who have actually in (laughs) kind of appropriated it for themselves at this point which is weird um but you know it's it's a it's a really powerful movie and he does a really good job of transferring the actual musical segments of it to stage and and that one you know all of the musical numbers in it are diegetic because it all takes place in a cabaret club all of the performances and you know the, the question of whether or not that is better than just having the characters break out into song is, you know, one that can be argued endlessly. But I think his commitment to this kind of like rigorous realism throughout uh, lends that film a lot of its its kind of philosophical and emotional power. Mm. It's weird that you should say that, you know, Coppola got the last laugh because he won two years later for mm. um, Godfather 2, where he also beat Bob Fosse. Who yes. was looking back at the seventy-four list of nominees was Coppola, John Cassavetes, Bob Fosse, Polanski, and Truffaut for Godfather Two: Woman Under the Influence, Lenny, Chinatown, and Day for Night. Of which Lenny is the weakest of those five movies. Mm. That's one still hell very of a list. Good. Yeah, it's still very good. But yeah. um, you know, it's not it's not unkind to say that Lenny is bringing up the rear of that pack. Yeah. Uh, and although it, its greatest legacy may be the fact that it directly, I believe it directly influenced uh, All That Jazz because All That Jazz was inspired by Bob Fosse almost killing himself, waking Lenny at the same time as uh, also being in rehearsals for the original production of Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, which is why the Roy Scheider character in that is making like a movie about a stand-up comedian. So... I mean, it's still good in its own right, but it, it definitely feels like a lesser film in that year and also in some ways is, is overshadowed by the films that Fosse made around it. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm going to leap a little bit nearer to to now mm-hmm. um, with uh, the year 2000 and Steven Soderbergh for Traffic. It's a good one. Um, I think that might be my favorite Steven Soderbergh movie. Um, I'm not sure it's his best movie, but like it's certainly my favorite. He beat himself that year. He was mm. nominated for both Traffic and. Aaron Brockovich, but the idea that for traffic he won over uh, Billy Elliot, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Gladiator, with the exception of Crouching Tiger, uh, all the other films are films that would be nominated for Oscars. Yeah. But uh, I think that was definitely the right one that year. It seemed to uh, um, kind of be the height of Steven Soderbergh's prolific phase post out of sight when he kind of made his comeback in the late nineties of what kind of commercial comeback should I say? Um, and he seemed to be doing any movie he wanted. He was just kept making and making and making them. And he was just like, right, we'll just get all the stars in this one movie. And he holds it together incredibly well mm. whilst making a film about a serious issue that avoids the usual hand wringing, uh, the Oscar nominated movies about big issues do. Yeah, and it's a movie that really seems to be him kind of pushing his own abilities as a filmmaker to their furthest extreme in terms of his use of colour to kind of separate the different storylines, which at this point kind of looks a little weird, particularly when you have like all the the, the blue-tinted stuff with Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. where it, where you're kind of like, well, why is this... Why did you go for this particular choice, whereas the other ones feel... Like the, the yellows feel a little more like natural actual light as opposed to the the blue tinting but it's it's certainly a case of him trying to tell a you know a complicated multifaceted story in a way that's still very accessible and i think he does a really good job with that in in his visual choices um the performances that he gets out of all of his actors you know it's a very big cast with people performing in different languages and you know, they all they all do great work. Obviously, Benicio del Toro won the uh, the Oscar that year for a, one of his best performances, and certainly one that I uh, again one that kind of often comes to mind. You know, him talking about uh, you know the the wanting to have like a soccer field for people to play on and things like that. It's a very it's a it's a kind of very tough edged movie for an Oscar winner. You know, mm-hmm. but. There is, you know, there's a lot of light and warmth to it as well. And the, the fact that he is able to let that creep in, I think, lends it a lot of its power. Mm, totally. I am going to pick for my next one a movie from 1955. It is the Delbert Mann movie Marty. And mm. the main reason I'm going to pick it is, one, because it's a, I think it's Marty's a, a fantastic movie. But also, when you look at the other films that it was nominated against, you had Ely Kazan for East of Eden, David Lean, Summertime, uh, Picnic, directed by Joshua Logan, and John Sturgis for Bad Day at Bla- ba- Black Rock. Now, bear in mind, Bad Day at Black Rock is a fantastic movie. It's an mm. alternate 100 for a reason. That is a, a really terrific work of cinema. But they're all very grand movies. Well, Summertime is kind of like a, a fairly intimate romance, but it still has kind of like a lushness to it. Whereas... Marty is like real kind of down and dirty social realist stuff um, from Hollywood. You can see it, it, it has its roots, obviously, in kind of television uh, because it was based on a, a screenplay which had already been filmed for TV. And, you know, there is a real kind of like wonderful working class edge to it, which, you know, in terms of it being nice to see 
the Oscars reward something that doesn't usually get recognized in the same way like last year with Moonlight which is like not a, a movie that you would expect the Oscars to recommend you know when you look at other movies that won in the 50s when you have like David Lean's epics you know like like um uh, a bridge on the river Kwai to see something like this which is a very small story that's just kind of about a lonely guy who's just trying to make a connection it's quite nice to see that be recognized and for them to say you know just because a movie is small doesn't mean that it's easy to direct just because it's not complicated or doesn't involve kind of huge set pieces that doesn't mean that directing is an unimportant part of it mm, yeah absolutely it's weird to look back at um sorry what year was that that was 55 55 that yeah that marty of all of the the kind of best picture winners is is one that is very often derided mm. which is the earlier films that win the the big the best picture oscars and stuff um because that one is that the one with um what's his face ernest borgnine in yeah, but he's uh, of all the films from like the fifties and sixties, they still get talked about all the time. Mm. But Marty is one that just doesn't. Yeah, and I've always wondered why that was. I, I do, I do think it's because it's a very, uh, it's it's not a particularly imposing movie. Like, yeah, and and the fact that Delbert Mann isn't one of those guys. Like, you could say, oh, like David Lean, obviously an auteur, you know, because of the kind of movies he made. Delbert Mann's very much a. Um, studio guy who just made a bunch of movies and but in that instance i think he was someone who brought something different to the kind of movies that the oscars usually recognize and and that's why i think that particular year he was the right right man for the job as the yeah i accidentally stumbled into that pun (laughs) yeah um well here's a question obviously we've made a deal of the fact that uh, it's a pretty, it's a sausage fest. The mm-hmm. uh, the best director uh, category, um, and for you know film in general. But the only uh, woman to win best director is Catherine Bigelow, yep. for The Hurt Locker in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. and she beat out James Cameron, her ex husband, yeah. um, for Avatar, which fine, terrible movie. Um, Lee Daniels for Precious, um. Which is all right, I guess. Yeah, it was weird that that was the one of his movies that really caught fire, as opposed to like a few years later when he did The Butler, which was like a very much a movie that seems to be courting Oscar attention, but ended mm. up just being a massive hit. Yeah. Jason Reitman, who did Up in the Air, which is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards. Uh, would you say, just using the example of uh, Miss Bigelow, um, to say that she is the only woman to have won the prize was she the right name on the uh, on the punch card that year i would say so of those those nominated i think she was the one who you know did the the best work i think that the the hurt locker is a, a terrific movie that her particular you know you can see her career she is someone who's very interested in exploring and exploding literally and figuratively masculinity i think you can see a direct line between the way in which like Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze interact with each other or Ron Silver in in Point Break or Ron Silver in Blue Steel. She's very interested in depicting machismo and The Hurt Locker definitely feels like the ultimate exploration of that for her in terms of like taking a 
very masculine environment, which is, you know, war and in particular this very specific part of the army, people who are, you know, diffusing bombs. It's the most fundamentally manly and and deadly job that you can do within the army. Uh, you know, she does a really great job of exploring it in ways that are, you know, I think could only really in some ways be done by a woman, someone who's like looking in from masculinity outwards and from the outside and saying, this is fucked up, right? Mm. <laughs> in a way that maybe you wouldn't necessarily get with, with uh, a male director. And I think the fact that she beat out all of those other guys uh, for movies that are good, but maybe more conventional and don't necessarily have that much to say. I think she was definitely the right choice that year. Mm, yeah. I mean, that was just a, a side point to see, you know, if, you know, it, it was true. It wasn't a token win. Um, no. It was a certainly excellent work in a tough field. Um, but I, my actual pick would have been um, the year before, Danny Boyle for Slumdog Millionaire. Sure. Um, and... Exciting because, I mean, he'd been around a while, directed a lot of different films, which is mm-hmm. something that Danny Boyle is noted for. He doesn't generally tend to stick around in a genre or a type of film, but makes films that are distinctly his. But he beat out Stephen Daldry for The Reader, David Fincher Oof. for Benjamin Button, Ron Howard for Frost Nixon and Gus yeah. Van Sant for Milk. I mean, Milk's a good movie. Yeah. Um, I like Frost Nixon, but it's, yeah. it's not yeah. like a particularly inventively shot movie. Yeah, but then that's why I think Slumdog Millionaire is a worthy winner. It's it's um, and Danny Boyle for directing it because it was, I believe, might have to fact check this. I believe it was the first uh, movie to win Best Cinematography that was digital. Uh, yeah, I believe that is correct. Yeah, so um, you know they were trying a lot of new things. They were filming in locations um, that in very unconventional ways. Uh, they were using actors that were, you know, in large parts unprofessional mm-hmm. in, you know, countries and milieus that aren't familiar to someone from Stockport or wherever Danny Boyle's from. Right. Um, but the film is uniquely not a white person looking at this strange culture um, mm-hmm. and, you know, turning in a, a, a bit of twee um, whimsy from the colonies for your entertainment it is a vibrant slice of Indian life. Um, mm. And it, he brings it to life in a way that none of those other directors did in their films. I mean, I like milk as a movie um, and it's a great story. Obviously Harvey milk is, you know, one of the most fascinating uh, figures of 20th century history, but it's very much a biopic It mm. falls into all those same, you know, traps and stuff. Slumdog Millionaire is a true story about a plucky underdog and is just breathed a little fresh life into um, by someone who has spent their career trying to do different things. Which So for that reason, you know, I don't believe Stephen Doldry approaches all these movies (laughs) like that. Yeah. I mean, again, no disrespect to Stephen Doldry, but, you know, his films are, you know, very regal and you know kind of bland <laughs> yeah. yeah and just boring and beige uh but you know danny Boyle seems to be able to avoid that trap fairly easily 
I'm always very surprised when I remember that Stephen Doldry's shot uh, was directed Billy Elliot. Mm-hmm. Because that is a movie that's kind of full of life and exciting and obviously, you know, uh, made a star of Jamie Bell, um, who's gone on to kind of like a, a great long career and uh, deservedly is someone who continues to do really, really good work. But yeah, everything else he did, like the next thing he did was The Hours, mm-hmm. which is such an airless movie and everything he's done since has been so kind of like crushingly bland and uninteresting. Or Did he do gone... Incredibly Loud and Terribly Close? Was that him? He, yes, that was also him, which uh, took it all the way to just really distasteful. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad, uh, I remember like a couple of months ago he was being battered around to to direct an Obi-Wan Kenobi spin-off movie. That's I was nice. like, in terms of In terms of weird Star Wars rumours, that's pretty fucking strange. Yeah, that is very much kind of like, uh, what director hasn't been in the news for a while? Let's just pick that name out there. Oh, yeah. Why not him? Um, uh, I've got a, a, before we move on, I've got a quick uh, anecdote about watching the Oscars and mm-hmm. the film The Hours and Stephen Doldry. Um, uh, there was... When the hours was out and nominated for Oscars, that I think that might have been one of the last years that you could watch the Oscars on the BBC, uh-huh. and I remember it very distinctly. I stayed up to watch it, and I was like, like four a.m. or whatever, and I was just, you know, tripping balls because it was really, really late, and I was just, you know, much the way I feel when I'm doing this podcast, Ed. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of spinning out, and I, but I remember this distinctly because they had Jonathan Ross was presenting it, mm-hmm. and they had John Rhys Davis. Uh, formerly known as Gimli from yeah. the Lord of the Rings movies or Salah from Indiana Jones films. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about him, he's a very garrulous individual um, yeah. and has also been in trouble for some slightly uh, politically incorrect things he said. And it was really late on in the show and I think they were coming up towards the uh, the best picture reveal. It was like for British audiences, it was like three in the morning or whatever, by which point either John Rhys Davis or was either really pissed or just could not give a fuck mm. and uh jonathan ross said uh was running down some of the films and he was like what do you think about this what do you think about this he goes now what do you think about the hours and then john, john reese davis perfectly paused and was just said well it's all right if you like that lesbo aids shit <laughs> i was like what the fuck how what huh and then they just cut away and then he wasn't there when they came back mm. surprising like, yeah i was just like wow they really didn't think to book their guests for the, the Oscar <laughs> show, did they? They could have got any of the other Fellowship of the Ring stars, mm. and they probably would have been way less offensive. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right if you like lesbo AIDS shit. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> brilliant, John. Yeah. Uh, a generation of actors that you just don't see that much any day for, yeah. uh, anymore for some reason, except for, like, Brian Blessed, who's just kind of nice and yeah. strange. Yeah, he probably would have said something funny in that point, not like, you know, grossly inappropriate or, you know, dreadful. Mm, and it would have related to some incredible story about him climbing a mountain or something. Yeah, or probably like, he probably got into a fist fight with Virginia Woolf, but it was probably <laughs> all right because they had a pint afterwards. And you're like, that's probably true. <laughs> or it'd be like, uh, a man tried to stab me to death once when <laughs> I was uh, in a bar and I held up a copy of To the Lighthouse and saved my life. Loved her ever since. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be exactly the story that Brian Brissett told. <laughs> uh, my um, last pick uh, is going to be from 2005, and it was Ang Lee who won for Brokeback Mountain. And part of the reason why uh, 
is because of, again, it was a year where there was a, a picture director split mm-hmm. and it was very much a case of the wrong film winning Best Picture because Crash won that year, uh, beating out Brokeback Mountain, which I think is, a, is a, a genuinely great movie, Munich, which I think is a really, really good movie, Capote, which is good, not great, but good, mm-hmm. uh, and Good Night and Good Luck, which I think is a much more, is a very good movie. Uh, certainly gave me false expectations for what George Clooney's directorial output would be like in the years ahead. Yeah. Um, but certainly a, a more thoughtful movie in terms of its exploration of kind of immediately post-America, uh, post-9-11 American concerns. Uh, but, you know, Ang Lee won for Brokeback Mountain, and I think it's uh, beating out, again, uh, Bennett Miller for Capote, Paul Haggis for Crash, George Clooney for Good Night, Good Luck, and Steven Spielberg for Munich. And I think... What's great about that, him winning that particular year is one, because he directed the best movie, but also his direction in that isn't especially showy. It's very austere. He's this, it's a movie where he is happy to just kind of like linger in the silences between the characters, particularly when Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal aren't necessarily speaking about how they feel towards each other. You know, there's this tension between this that's unspoken. And I think he does a really good job of depicting their romance of capturing their isolation and really allowing the performers to kind of live on screen and to really sell the idea that these two guys have an attraction to each other. And that it's something that they they obviously do act upon, but the society that they live within is not exactly um, that receptive to it. And I think that he gets a lot of that across through uh, through subtlety. And I think in the case, a lot of the time, the Oscars don't necessarily celebrate subtlety in directing because it's that thing where it's the same as with editing. It's like the thing with, with good editing is that you're not really meant to notice it. And... I think that's often the case with good directing as well. Mm. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. And and another director that doesn't really stick to one thing. Mm. Um, Considering the film he made immediately before was Hulk. Yes, and then Very immediately before that was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, do you think it's hard for directors who hop around between the genres and between the styles to win awards like that or do you think you think it think it's think it's more an individual you're more likely to be noticed or is it building a career of uh, respected work that gets you uh, gets you the nod i think his work in the 90s probably allowed him to take those risks obviously by then he'd already done the ice storm he'd already done sense and sensibility and uh, e-drink man woman uh, Ride with the Devil, which wasn't exactly a, a big hit. I think it, it it was one of his first kind of like out and out flops. But he he was someone who had established a reputation for being somewhat eclectic, but also someone who you know is makes movies that were kind of academy friendly. So he you know he was kind of given the chance to do something like Hulk, which was obviously very much outside of his wheelhouse of what he was known for, and and obviously like Crouching Tiger Hidden. Dragon was a colossal hit mm-hmm. uh, when it came out, and there is there is something to be said for the notion of him as being someone who, thanks to the success of that, was able to kind of like ride out something like Hulk, which was wildly divisive when it came out and confused a lot of people. Mm. 
Yeah, rightly so. It's not very good. I've, I've got a certain fondness for it, but I haven't seen it in a while. I remember watching it and thinking that it was, it, you know, it's very much of that lineage of idiosyncratic and strange superhero movies. Like, it, you can definitely put it alongside something like Tim, ba- Tim Burton's first two Batman movies and say, this was very much a director looking at the comic book genre and trying to think, how can I make this weird? Mm. Uh, and not necessarily, the, the results, you know, not necessarily being either great or palatable. Uh, although I do like Batman Returns a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, surprisingly, well, maybe depressingly, uh, unsurprising, mm. like looking down the list of all these things that we've been kind of going up and down um, the last hour or so, how many average, average films get nominated for Oscars? And how many, mm. and, and like people re- winning for the wrong reasons, uh, with yeah. the wrong film, like Peter Jackson winning for Return of the King, um, which was just a reward for how well that trilogy had done, um, yeah. over Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation or Fernando mm. Maria's for City of God. Both of those yeah. films, you could say, you could make the argument for, were better directorial efforts than Return of the King, which was, if you follow the production history of that movie, stitched together from a lot of reshoots because, you know, it was perhaps a little ambitious to try and shoot all three movies at once. Yeah, and if you're talking about which of those movies he deserved to win for, he probably deserved to win for the first one more just because, you know, getting that movie to work as well as it did was all, was a huge achievement in its own right, but it's also the one that feels the most cohesive as a as a story, as a piece of filmmaking. Mm. And while the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole is kind of was like a huge undertaking and it was very impressive that it got it happened. Um the the fact that they essentially piled all the awards onto the last one wasn't necessarily representative it representative of it being the best one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's is it still the most successful one Oscars wise film? Full stop. Like, did it win? It won every award it was nominated for. Yeah, it won thirteen, so it's tied for the most wins ever. I think. Yeah, in terms of sheer success, I think it probably is one of the few that's gone pretty much a hundred percent. Grief. Yeah, which is which is uh, nuts. Mm. Before we go this week, uh, I think you know, like like I've been saying. We're recording this just before the Oscar ceremony, and people will hear it afterwards. So let's uh, kind of throw caution to the wind, and instead of doing recommends this week, we'll just throw out some quick Oscar predictions, and we'll go through. We'll just go through like the big five. So, okay, so we'll start off with best supporting actress, which is Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, Alison Janney for I Tonya, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, and Laurie Ma- Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. Um, I would like to see Leslie Manville win uh, for Phantom Thread. Um, I think Alison Janney will win. Yeah, I think she's pretty much the odds-on favourite. Obviously, actress who's been around for a very long time, much beloved, done lots of really great work. And even though I'm not a big fan of the movie, I Tonya, I think she is a she and Margot Robbie are both kind of like highlights of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of which of those is my favourite performance, I just love everything Leslie Manville does in Phantom Thread. I think she is uh, incredibly uh, entertaining, particularly uh, when she says that, uh, when she threatens <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> to fight her. And she says she will not come out of it alive. Mm-hmm. 
Best Supporting Actor, we got Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, Woody Harrelson for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World, and Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Sam Rockwell's obviously going to win this one. Um, yeah, it's a fait accompli at this point. Uh, yeah, I think it would be hilarious if Christopher Plummer did win it to win an <laughs> award for a film you didn't know you were in um, mm-hmm. uh, four weeks before it came out. Uh, out of all those, I actually think that Woody Harrelson offered more in Three Billboards than Sam Rockwell. Um, yeah. It's obviously a less showier role. Uh, and spoilers, he's on screen for a lot less time. Um, yeah. But just because I like him, I really want Richard Jenkins to win. I don't think yeah. he's won, and he's been nominated for quite a few. Stuff like The Visitor, which is a great movie he was nominated for. Yeah. What was the other big movie he was nominated for? I think that may be it. Yeah. I think that's the only time he's been nominated. Yeah. Um, and I really like him in Shape of Water. Um, yeah. I'd really like to see him do it, but it's, it, it's Rockwell's to lose. Mm. I of My, uh, my favourite in that is Willem Dafoe. I think just gives such a warm and atypical performance. Uh, compared to what we know him for. Mm-hmm. I think he's so good in, in The Florida Project. Um, I'll just share my favourite ever Richard Jenkins story, which is that he found out he was nominated for The uh, for the Visitor when he was having a phone conversation with his son-in-law's father, and he said, congratulations. And he said, on what? On being nominated for Best Actor. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, he had no idea that it happened. Uh, I just like the brief window into Richard Jenkins's life that, that offers. Apparently, he has a really good relationship with his son-in-law's father. Mm. Uh, the visit is such a good fucking movie, and no one ever talks about it. Mm. Yeah, and he is—he is just so great in that. And that is one of those ones where you think, "I have no idea how this happened. <laughs> I have no idea how he managed to get nominated for that movie." Mm. But I'm so glad that he kind of entered into the conversation, and then. You know, since then, his his career has been somewhat different. Like, he'd always been a, a reliable character actor. But in the years since then, you know, he would show up in, like, Burn After Reading or The Cabin in the Woods. You know, he, he got a lot of roles in high-profile movies, which was, was really nice to see. That that nomination clearly had a, a, a affected the kind of roles that he had a shot at. Which is, you know, we, we, we kind of talk a lot of shit about the Oscars being essentially meaningless. But I think it's always nice to remember that they do have a palpable impact for like nominees. It can drastically change the way that their career goes and the opportunities that they get. Mm -hmm. Best actress. We have Sally Hawkins for the shape of water. Francis, Francis McDormand for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Margot Robbie for I, Tonya, Saoirse Ronan for lady bird and Meryl Streep for the post. Um, uh, I would love Sally Hawkins to win. Mm hmm. Yep. One of the greatest actresses working today. Yeah, exactly. I would love Saoirse Ronan to win. Um, however, Francis McDormand will win. Uh, mm-hmm. It is as close to a sure run thing as you're going to see uh, in yeah. this Oscar race. Um, and, I, I mean, I really like Francis McDormand. I love everything she's done. And she is really good in that movie. I just don't like the movie. Yeah, I think Sally Hawkins would probably be my pick as well because I think she's such a wonderful actress and she's so good in, in the role. Um, or like say Saoirse Ronan, but like Saoirse Ronan has had three Oscar nominations before the age of 23. So she'll win at some point. <laughs> she's, she's, uh, she's going to not want for chances. Whereas you don't know how many more, how many more these kind of like significant roles Sally Hawkins will get because she actually doesn't work as often as you would think. Mm, yeah. And Saoirse Ronan, it will probably win her Oscar for something she doesn't deserve years <laughs> down the line. Hmm. 
Best Actor, we have Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name, Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Fred, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire. Uh, this is the one I'm least qualified to uh, to talk about because I've only seen two of the movies. Um, mm. So between Daniel Day-Lewis and Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Kaluuya all day long. Yeah, I think... For me, my favourite of those, just in terms of how much it surprised me and delighted me, was the uh, Denzel Washington in Roman J. Israel. I think he was doing something that he hadn't done uh, in a while or, or before. I think he's it's a really moving performance, and uh, I'm really glad that it was recognised. Obviously, Gary Oldman's going to win, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, kind of depressing. But if I had to choose who I would like to see win, yeah, I think I would like to see Daniel Kaluuya win, just because it's... That that was probably of all the nominations that came up this year was like the most surprising because mm. you were like, wait, I did not see that coming. I saw Get Out getting a lot of stuff. I didn't see it, him getting recognised, even though it's a great performance. You know, like the Academy ignores horror movies in general and performances in horror movies even more. So for him to get recognition for a great performance in a very un Oscary kind of role and genre is really exciting. Mm. And it's. Um... Uh, interesting that Gary Oldman is someone who has, hasn't has actually been nominated for the Oscar that many times. I think his first one was yeah. maybe for The Contender, maybe, which would have been late 90s or early 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just a shame to see him win for this, something like this. Although I haven't seen the movie, like I have literally no interest in seeing it because <laughs> I kind of understand the thing. <laughs> I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, I'm, you know, I'm sure he does a good impression of Winston Churchill in his kind of nutty professor fat suit. Um, but, you know, in terms of, like, what we're going to talk about as the most... You know, I talked earlier about uh, Marlon Brando and, and you know, that performance in on the waterfront, bringing the, the, the method to the big screen and having a character mm. turn up and mumble his way through a performance who's kind of really attractive but also super ugly at the same time and just bringing yeah. a completely new thing that in years, like people will look up to to that performance and be inspired by Marlon Brando on the waterfront and 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 want to be an actor because of that. And I'm sure that people looked at Gary Oldman's performances in stuff like, you know, The Firm and uh um uh what's the I can't remember, it's not called uh Prick Up Your Ears and like, you know, mm. like performances like that and think, wow, there's a the best actor of his generation and then we get to see him playing fucking Winston Churchill in a fat suit for Oscars. Yeah. And that's what he's going to win for. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's very much kind of like a legacy thing, but not not one of his most inspired roles. Mm. I think it'd be super funny if Daniel Day-Lewis won and when mm-hmm. he like listed off the people to thank, he ended it by saying and some sausages, which <laughs> which would be funny, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I I maybe don't think I don't think he will. I mean, he can't do, no. like, you know, three big barnstorming performances. He can't win an Oscar for his last three films. Yeah, that's true. Well, oh, no, because he had nine in there to kind of throw off. Oh, did he? Yeah. The average, didn't he? Okay. Yeah. The, the, the one mistake that everyone allows him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is like, eh, you need to blow off some steam after playing Daniel Plainview. Um, okay, so we have Best Director, which is Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Ladybug, Paul Thomas Anderson for the aforementioned Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Del Toro, I think, will win it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I'd be happy with that because, I mean, The Shape of Water is definitely a Guillermo del Toro film, uh, a film yeah. that couldn't have been made by anyone else other than Guillermo del Toro, um, which is probably true of some of the other movies. I think all five of the movies um, are very distinct, very interesting, and none of them are boring, which is mm. like the, the most exciting thing about this field. Even the thing that you would look down on paper being the most Oscar-y of films, Dunkirk, a you know prestige picture about a real historical event, is done in such an unusual, abrasive way. Yeah, that, um, you know, we're not here kind of talking about it in the same way that we would the King's Speech. Any of those act, uh, directors, I would be happy to um, to kind of see win. I think Christopher Nolan has been there and thereabouts for years, has always tried to do interesting things, doesn't always work, um, mm-hmm. but at least tries to make interesting big-budget movies. Obviously, Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig have n- never made a movie before, so it would be cool if they won. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has directed some of my favourite films of all time. Phantom Thread is not one of my favourite films of Paul Thomas Anderson's. Um, but, you know, if he won for that, I'd feel slightly hollow because... He's deserved to win for, for other movies, but I'd like Guillermo del Toro to win it, and I think he will. Yeah, I I think of them, the one I would most like to see would be Greta Gerwig, just because it, it goes back to that thing about how good directing is sometimes direction you don't notice. Mm-hmm. And I think that her ability as a director has been undervalued in you know the pacing of Lady Bird, Bird the way it's constructed. And I think that, uh, you know, her, there's been a lot of focus on her as a writer, but I think that, you know, she gets great performances out of people. She has great comic timing in that movie in terms of the the way in which she moves from scene to scene. And there's a couple of very funny, quick montages in it, which are things that are not, you know, you have to have a very keen sense for the kind of movie you're making to, to do that sort of thing. So I think it'd be great if she won. Um, I think, yeah, I think, Del Toro is probably the most likely to win, um, but I think that Jordan Peele has a pretty strong chance. But yeah, I think Guillermo Del Toro will probably win it. Uh, and as we've said before, it'd be nice that he'll kind of finish the triumvirate of him, Inaritu and uh, Quaron. Mm, yeah. Who, uh, all, all came up at the same time, and it'd be nice if they all had Best Director Oscars to kind of call their own. Mm, um, I'm calling it like there'll be a really distasteful Three Amigos headline if he does win. <laughs> that would be fucking dreadful. Yep. Okay, and finally, best picture, we have Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Fred, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, three three billboards will win, I think, and Get Out should win. Pretty simple. I am going to tie my colours to the mast and say that Get Out should win, and it will. Ooh. Bold prediction to make, which will be rendered either prescient or completely foolish in the next sort of four hours time yeah but uh i think it has the social relevance i think it's really a great movie and i also think that it's the sort of thing that would really appeal to the small but significant kind of um like younger more diverse part of the academy and obviously like the that that part of the academy they're not kind of a, a complete uniform block but i could see it being because they do it by preferential voting i could see it riding fairly high in a lot of people's picks and that maybe allowing it similar to like supposedly how moonlight happened last year where uh it, it kind of went out because it wasn't necessarily 
number one for a lot of people's, but it was number one for enough people and like number two and three for enough for it to end up winning. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm I'm going to say Get Out should and will. Mm, interesting. I think so, running down that list, like of all of them, The Post and Dunkirk and Darkest Hour just don't have any heat. Um, no. Phantom Thread is too weird. Um, yeah, it's very abrasive. <laughs> so that really needs leaves. Call me by your name. Get out, Ladybird. Uh, Shape of Water and three billboard, billboards. It's almost like they shouldn't have like stretched it to more than five movies. I mean, I kind of like it because I think if you hadn't stretched out, you know, maybe Moonlight wouldn't have happened last year. It seems like the sort of movie that maybe wouldn't have got uh, enough attention, uh, or it may not have, may have not made the cut. And I think it does encourage them to look at different kinds of movies. So I like it, but. Yeah, at the same time, you just kind of wonder how different the last few years would have gone if they'd been forced to just focus on, like, the top five. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The The ceremony is about to begin, so we will uh, say goodbye. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Please leave us a review and rate us. It helps us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.